As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. Great to have you with us this week. I'm Ali Maxwell. How about Arsenal? Right now sitting either five, seven or eight points clear at the top of the Premier League, depending uh, on the time that you listen and the score between Manchester City and Tottenham Hotspur. And it feels like all season they've been comprehensively ticking off quibbles about their title potential. Arsenal have proven, among other things, that they can continually create chances and score goals against different types of defence, that they can consistently win games away from home as well as at the Emirates, and that they can attack with patient build-up play or quicker and more direct when the circumstances dictate it, that they can press high. They've had the most turnovers that end in shots in the Premier League, but have shown defensive sturdiness to see out tough spells when needed. Arsenal, for the first time all season, are the favourites to win the Premier League per the bookmakers and prediction sites such as 538. So what possible quibble can remain? What suspicion, what concern, what red flag, no matter how small? Today we're asking, can Arsenal win the league even if they don't sign anyone in January? This will be a conversation about squad depth. What does it mean? What are the myths around squad depth? And can Arsenal take care of business between now and May and win the Premier League with the current squad? So what's our own pod depth like for this episode? It's that man again, Mark Carey's here. How are you doing? Are you okay? Really well. And it just had to be Liam Tharm. Hello. And who else? Michael Cox is back with us. Hello, Michael. Hi, Ali. I think this is a fascinating topic that has relevance both sort of short term and more widely as we look back across previous winners of the Premier League. And it came from a question we've been chatting about in Slack over the last few weeks. Can Arsenal win the league if they don't sign anyone in January? I think pulses have been quickening a little bit amongst the fan base after missing out on players such as Mudrik and Joao Felix. Uh, This morning, David Ornstein's reporting that Leandro Trossard might be moving from Brighton to Arsenal. But let's start with a simple one. Is it true, Michael, that Arsenal lack squad depth? Well, I think it is true. It's not one of their strengths. I think the game against Newcastle where they drew 0-0 and you sensed they needed to bring on some attacking impetus and all they had was Tomiyasu to bring on as a replacement right back kind of summed up the issues. I know they've got a a couple of injuries. Obviously, Gabriel Jesus, uh, Emil Smith-Rowe has been out as well, Reese Nelson recently. 
But uh, but that's part of the problem. I mean, part of the problem you have squad depth is to cope with injuries. And they are a little bit down to the bare bones. The flip side of that is they're playing a very consistent 11. And I think it's clear that they've got the best understanding on the pitch between their starters. But yeah, when you, when you go outside the uh, starting 11, they don't have the strength that Man City have. I think that's one of the two ways you, you can do it really is have those players uh, in reserve and you can constantly be, you know, chopping and changing, maybe not wholesale changes, but one or two having sort of tactical flexibility um, and, you know, going through different systems and different shapes, but um, very consistent in terms of their, their shape and their style, their approach play. Um, and that's been, I think, maybe catching people more by surprise as it goes on and we now go, OK, we know how they're going to attack. We know what the key players like to do and yet they're still being you know, really successful and being really hard to stop. Um, and I guess that's why the question prolongs and we keep going or we keep asking this question and Arsenal keeps sort of going, yeah, we're, we're OK. They've named an unchanged starting line eight times uh, in the league this season, more than anyone else. So it just backs up what you're saying, Michael, that by the numbers, they are the most settled side. Um, you'd think they'd maybe have done it less often this season because they've actually you know they're competing in, in Europe and across multiple competitions obviously less so um, last season because they weren't in Europe but yeah by all accounts they're able to have a settled side because they've staved off um, from too many injuries at the moment um, but yeah certainly the numbers back up that they are a very settled squad. It, it feels like in the instances where depth has been needed where a, a fringe player or a, a reserve player if you like has had to step up into the first team it does feel like they have generally performed pretty well Liam and, and I guess that will partly come down to the system itself and the comfort of every squad member in understanding what Mikel Arteta wants from his players in certain roles. Yeah, I think so. A big word for Eddie Nketiah there, I think, is someone who's, who's stepped into the four. Uh, there were definitely, I think, a lot more worries when, when Jesus' injury sort of got confirmed and the timescale of that. Um, I know Michael's mentioned the, the Newcastle game where they lacked options coming off the bench, but I thought first half in particular, Nketiah's back-to-goal play, um, incredibly good. He spins people very well. We've seen him score goals that way this season. Um, and I think it's slightly different to Jesus in that regard. And um, you don't necessarily need an identical player to replace someone, but someone that can do um, you know, the same types of things or get you into the same sorts of situations. Um, and he's been incredible. Um, obviously, an, an academy grad. I know they poached him from from Chelsea, but um, there's probably a word there for Arsenal's academy having brought through a lot of these players mm-hmm. and not having to recruit externally. Obviously, they won't have been trained all their life as, as a child growing up playing the Arteta way because he wasn't managing them then. But to have these players that have been in the system, you know, they've worked with, they've curated themselves. Um, I think it really sort of shows the the value there. I mean, Nketiah's started four games in the Premier League recently, scored in in two of them, uh, and I think raises an interesting part of this discussion, Michael, sometimes that the depth and people's perception of it looks maybe weaker than you'd want because it's unproven. These are players that haven't necessarily failed when they've been given a chance. It's more the fact that they haven't necessarily had the chances. They, they might be young players waiting for a chance or players signed to be squad players who have up to that point been squad players, haven't been needed. I think it's kind of an interesting part of this. you you can't be proven in the first team until you have a chance to prove yourself. And Ketia, very much a, a case in point here. A lot of people tend to lean towards signing new players because they think that they'd be able to plug in and play a little easier. But even on that side, there's uncertainty. New players come into a, a different environment, a different play style that they're not comfortable with and may need time to get up to speed. Yeah, and in a sense, maybe the Jesus injury happened at the perfect time because Nketiah had two or three games to try and prove himself before the window opened. And if he'd been disastrous, then maybe Arsenal would have pushed harder for Charles Felix or who knows, someone else. But actually, I think Nketiah, as Liam says, has been really good. He's offered a slightly different op- option to Gabriel Jesus and, yeah, deserves his place in the side. 
In terms of Leandro Trossard, David Ornstein reporting this morning that it's definitely a transfer target for Arsenal. Uh, still some, some details to be ironed out there between the, the two clubs. Um, Liam, uh, Trossard as a player and Arsenal as a team with the various roles in midfield or attacking midfield roles, which of those roles would Trossard be earmarked for? Or is this someone who you know, you'd love to have as depth because you could trust him to fill in a, a couple of those different roles and positions? Yeah, I think the latter of it really. Um, can play anywhere sort of across the forward line. He's played at wing-back at times at the start of the season, um, but sort of in his time at Brighton of the past sort of three years has transitioned really from um, quite a balanced creator, incredibly two-footed, shoots quite well off both feet, um, but, you know, did a lot of stuff as a winger or as a 10, creating for others, you know, putting in crosses, playing passes around the box to really sort of one of these wide forwards now that tends to attack the box, you know, score lots of goals, um, can take a penalty too. So I, I think he when you look at how Arsenal attack and like to build up play in terms of having those rotations particularly with Hayes who's out on the left he'd, he'd work in that sense he'd be, be fluid and be dynamic and as you say he's not looking to be a starter he's be one of those depth players but um, he's consistently scored goals consistently created goals obviously he's not had the chance to play in Europe against sort of you know top level opposition there or uh, on sort of a tougher scale in terms of minutes and, and games played but um, exactly the type of player um, ironically the age thing is, is the only real question mark and that you look at Arsenal's average age of their squad and how young they are um, he's probably got this would be his big move at 28 mm. now um, from, from that Brighton side and a quick word on, on Mudrik, who signed for Chelsea rather than Arsenal. We did a whole episode on João Felix last week and we covered every base there was to cover, but I don't think anyone mentioned his his uh, excitement occasionally at leaping into dangerous tackles and picking out red cards on debut. We, I feel like we saw basically everything that you guys spoke about within that what hour-long performance from João Felix, both the good and the bad there. In terms of Mudrik... I guess we can kind of talk about it from an Arsenal and from a Chelsea point of view because I want to know what sort of player he is and what we can expect from him in the Premier League. In this Arsenal team, had they signed him, which of the attacking midfielder wide roles would he have been challenging for? Uh, and when it comes to the fit at Chelsea, um, where's he going to fit in uh, as per our conversation last week? Well, I looked at his sort of position map where he receives the ball and it's very much on the left side. I think we spoke about with Felix, he can play wide, he can play in more central areas, whereas Mudrick is far more of a stick to the left side sort of um, winger. Um, looking at his video, he's very much someone who plays a lot in the transition. He's so fast in, in the way that he can get past his man, but a lot of it has been kind of transitional play where he just blitz them. I think similar to the sort of, I think we had this conversation last week with Felix and to a certain extent you could say with uh, Timo Werner as well, when he came in, he was coming from an RB Leipzig side where he could ex you could expose the space in front of him and you can get, you know, you can maximise his strengths. With Mudrik, I think it's very much the same where his skill set is very much transitional, very skillful, very sort of dribbly, but against a set defence, which you're more likely to come across with a higher quality in the Premier League um, in, in terms of an opponent, he might not be able to, maximize that that skill set mm. so i think to sort of answer your question of where he would be it would be on the the left hand side um whether or not we'll get to sort of play in the same style it i guess remains to be seen quick aside but touching on what you've mentioned there i was watching some clips from aston villa's new striker john duran uh, and some of his best moments from his last season in mls and i was watching them both excited at what i was seeing and also kind of thinking to myself these sorts of scenarios don't happen mm. very much in the Premier League. Like it felt like half the time he was he was basically running from halfway into space where with no set defence whatsoever, just outpacing defenders and sort of just about finishing one v one. And I thought, well, how many times 
in a season are you going to get an opportunity like that? Um, Is that the old penalty shootouts they used to do in uh, (laughs) (laughs) North America? He's from the the 80s, yeah, John Duran. Anyway, let's get back to Arsenal. Michael, in terms of the the defensive unit, which I take to be the back four, which has been pretty settled and very high performing, but also Thomas Partey at the base of midfield, a crucial defensive cog in this team. In terms of, of depth and any concerns going forward for Arsenal, what do you make of that part of the pitch? I think they're fine there, really. I mean, because they've got a bit of depth with Tomoyasu, who hasn't been in the side, and Kieran Tierney, who hasn't been in the side. And they've also got versatility. I mean, uh, Tomoyasu's proven capable of playing on both sides. Uh, and Ben White obviously can can slot into the centre of defence if needed. I don't think he's actually done that this season. Uh, hasn't needed to. I mean, no, Gabriel's I, played every minute. Yeah, absolutely. Saliba feels like he's got more plaudits of the two, but Gabriel's performances have been super solid and consistent. Yeah, and I also think it's, it's the area of the pitch where you probably want familiarity the most, so you don't chop and change unnecessarily. And it's also the area of the pitch where, in general, I don't think you want or need tactical options, albeit Arsenal do play in an interesting way. I mean, Zinchenko plays the left-back way in a very specific manner that Tierney has tried to do but I don't think is a a real natural at it is no parte the biggest problem perhaps I think there's ways around that as Michael mentioned with Zinchenko coming inside we've seen White do a lot of the overlapping Um, I think it's a team that are so good attacking out wide that maybe you can compensate in the middle I I think Odegaard when he drops deep is particularly talented as well we've seen his combination play Um, and the best compliment I can give them is how good and varied an attacking team they are Um, we've seen how good they are you know even early in games getting in behind a a defensive line really well very incisively they've got really good off-ball runners they've got wingers in Martinelli and Saka who are excellent 1v1 and can bail you out of a situation and just just go at a defender we obviously saw that with with Saka in the the North London derby but equally as good in transition their set pieces have been nice and varied this season obviously their first goal of the season came from a, a really inventive set piece and I'm not sure specifically on the stats but they were right up there so um, they're versatile and that's why I think they're doing so well in so many games because they can show these different faces and, and score and create in different ways. I think on the note of Partey he might be one of those examples where you don't realise just how valuable he is until he comes out of the side for, for whatever reason. I mean he has been getting a lot of good plaudits quite rightly so he's really good off the ball as well as being very good on the ball and being looking for the the pass forward as soon as he gets it but he just seems to be and he does as I say get a lot of the plaudits in the commentary he does just seem to be everywhere and just hoovering up little little uh, tackles here and there and just hoovering up um, interceptions and ball recoveries and things like that so when you take him out the side if it was to ever happen I think you'd notice it a lot more rather than necessarily what we do see when he's on the field and I think the most obvious game where he wasn't on the pitch was away at Manchester United when Arsenal lost 3-1 and I think two of the goals came from Ericsson passes into mm. Fernandez between the lines. So the fact that obviously they're playing again this weekend is interesting and maybe it will come into sharper focus because Manchester United don't have their equivalent in uh, Casemiro, who's suspended. But even in terms of what Partey does on the ball, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like El Elneny as maybe the most obvious replacement for him in those situations or even a, a tweak where Xhaka moves into a more defensive role. That for me, just in terms of, of ball progression and quality on the ball and, and helping to knit attacks together is an obvious area where, where it drops off a bit. Yeah, I think El Elneny had, last season, I think had the highest pass completion rate of any midfielder, which given what we've spoken about on this podcast, the reason that you think of that is because... Best passer in the league then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is because he's uh, he's a bit more of a steady Eddie. We'll, we'll keep it simple in his passing and, and keep things ticking along, but we'll be far less adventurous in his passing. So uh, I'm sure if we looked at things like possession value and expected threat, um, it, we wouldn't come out quite as, as high in that regard because he's uh, yeah he's less adventurous in his passing. 
I think there were two games where that really stood out for me um, this season against PSV in, in the Europa League. They had Lokonga, Odegaard and Xhaka as their midfield three. And then against Brighton in the Carabao Cup, it was Lokonga, Elneny and sort of Fabio Vieira in a 10 row in more of a 4-2-3-1. Um, and there you've got creative, talented players. You've got a number 10 really sort of in both sides. And we've seen Xhaka be that more advanced threat, uh, really that sort of free running um, number eight. But when you haven't got those players to stitch it together um, to make the regains as well, you know, start the attacks, uh, initiate them. Um, I think on, on both occasions, they had plenty of the ball but they couldn't really break through the lines PSV in particular kept picking them apart in transition um, like United did in, in that fixture um, and again some of the Brighton goals did come centrally down the middle quickly breaking through that midfield and Odegaard alongside Martin Odegaard has pinned it into the bottom corner and Arsenal are dreaming so Martin Odegaard's my favourite player in the league and so I might be a little biased but I was thinking about on the weekend, if the league stopped now and Arsenal were crowned champions, would Odegaard win player of the season in the Premier League? Yeah, I guess the contenders have been two different Norwegians, haven't they? First 10 weeks, he probably would have said Haaland. And in recent times, he probably would say Odegaard. But yeah, he's been excellent. And uh, I think it's interesting he's the captain as well. He's quite an unusual captain. You have to go back a long way in history, I suspect, to find another kind of slender attacking midfielder. Uh, to captain a side who are at the moment uh, the favourites for the title um, so yeah he's been excellent really consistent as well which I think is unusual for a player in his mould I thought the first couple of weeks of the season he was quite quiet but since then no criticisms at all desperately trying to go back through the entirety of football history and thinking about slender mm. attacking players wearing an armband um, l- let's not bother if- it's quite niche yeah. it's, it's not something that springs <laughs> to mind well, if you're still slightly more on the fence than me about Martin Odegaard and his credentials for the player of the season gong, I think there's an episode out now on the Athletic Football Podcast feed uh, talking about Martin Odegaard, a special episode just dedicated to the midfield. Uh, I mean, I think it's an interesting part of the discussion around squad depth in more general that part of the discussion has to be kind of catastrophizing, right? So if we do that for Arsenal and we create a hypothetical six-week injury for Martin Odegaard, Michael, who steps in there? I was going to say on the catastrophizing point, do you think it's with Arsenal specifically they've done that in recent seasons with Champions League, with Europe, that they've gone a large portion of the season, looked okay and then fallen apart? So maybe it's just um, swept up to side our sort of gut instinct reaction of, oh, I've seen this one before of them doing really well and now it's maybe a stage where it's different and you feel even more significant because there's a title on the line and, and um, as Arsenal writers have written about, they are now passing more of these tests and beating these these uh, these teams that you know they haven't beaten before or they've lost to previously. Uh, yeah, I think that's a really good point about the catastrophe kind of side of things because I'd, it's not about that, is it? It's I'd say that's one of four reasons you have squad depth. One is if you do get injuries. The second is to prevent injuries and to prevent burnout so you can rotate your players the third thing is to provide tactical options and different types of players. And the fourth thing is competition for places. Um, so there's a few things that, there's a few elements of squad depth. What I think has maybe changed from, say, 10, 15 years ago is that, for example, Guardiola generally likes a, a small squad. I think maybe a little bit less now than a few years ago, but he always went into Barcelona seasons, Bayern Munich seasons, where people were saying, well, you've only got like 18 outfielders. Mm-hmm. He was always short on a centre-back and always, you know, like dropping a holding midfielder in. And I think, well, I gather that was because he feels if you've got lots of players on the outside who don't really have a chance to start games, the overall level drops. And you don't have the intensity and you don't have that kind of fierce competition for places. And I do wonder whether you can actually have too big a squad. I think that's particularly an issue now for 
international teams. Now it's a 26 player squad and they're all holed up together for a month in a hotel. And there's at least six or seven players who know they're not going to be starting. I think probably the morale does drop a little bit. So maybe that's something to prevent. It's why you want cheerleaders in the 24th, 25th, 26th. For sure. Squad slots, right? Like, And you look at Argentina... And they didn't have a big squad, mm. really. I mean, they had like four or five players in reserve who could come in, but you go down to the 23rd, 24th best player. It wasn't like 10 years ago when they had Saviola and Higuain and Tevez and Aguero and Messi. Like they had so, but you can only put 11 players on the pitch and you can only bring on five as a sub. So once you get past, I don't know, 18, 19, does it really matter that much? Well, at the very extreme end of the scale, I mean, Wales took Chris Gunter and Johnny Williams, both play in League Two in, in England's fourth tier this season um, as far as I can tell with very little intention of them ever seeing the pitch but just because they were incredibly important off the field in the dressing room as senior members of the squad who who everyone respected and liked and who would provide support rather than potential issues uh, I guess that's that's what we're talking about now I mean going back to, to Guardiola and, and his view on things and I think it pertains to Arsenal and Arteta and, and how well-oiled the machine is even if you're, you're swapping players in and out at times is there an extent to which people focus too much on the names of the players and how an individual person rates an individual player when it comes to squad depth you just look at names on paper let's say the the 14th to 20th names in the squad and you worry that those players as individuals aren't good enough because of your own ratings of them. But if the team is good enough, if the roles are clear enough and everyone understands the roles, then I could see how a manager would think it's it's actually less important the names of the players and the quality of the players and more important that those who fill in are absolutely ready to do so because as a squad, we, we know what to do. Yeah, and I think it, it points back to having your, um, to your best 11 versus your 11 best. Mm. I also... I don't want to go too much into the the details of um, the psyche and sort of you know player management because we're not privy to what goes on inside the dressing rooms. But I imagine you know bigger players who uh, are at more pivotal points in their career that want to be playing more are harder to manage than maybe young players coming through or players you know at the end of their sort of career um, or players that you know maybe being bought from a slightly lower quality league that are prepared to sort of take on those um, those sort of backup roles. And and I think that's you know you then see the likes of Mkhitaryan come through and when they do get the opportunity and do take it then you know that's fine and it's not then saying if if, he, if Jesus comes back then straight away and Kate is going to get booted out that that might then be okay we'll find a way to work together and use players in good form or sort of in good moments so um, yeah, I think people do massively overrate having a name um, I don't think it's uh, as essential really um, and you get that phrase system player gets banded around a lot as almost a critique of some people that can or can't do something outside of a team but a job of an Arsenal player is to function in an Arsenal team. It doesn't matter if they could work in Liverpool or Man City because they're not playing for that team. They need yeah. to work for Arsenal at that moment in time. Yeah, I was going to exactly say that point, Liam. I mean, you've spoken before about principles of play and knowing exactly what to, to do irrespective of the exact sort of position that you're in. So I think it's, it's credit to the coaching from that perspective. I think with the sort of the trade-off between player quality and quantity as well, like having a, a smaller squad, but then having the positional versatility is, is crucial. You think of Tommy Asu, Zinchenko, potentially Trossard as well. Bringing in these players who are able to play in multiple positions means that it allows you to have that smaller squad, but it, in a sort of a false way. And in the, in the, the combinations that you could have are sort of far wider. And you look at the... The champions in seasons past, like Bernardo Silva, Phil Foden, able to play across the front line or in, in midfield. And 
from Liverpool's perspective in recent years, James Milner is the, the perfect example of that. Joe Gomez could play centre-back or right-back much in the same way of Ben White this season. So having that trade-off, as I say, in quality and quantity, you can you can inflate the, sort of the quantity by having a smaller group of players with high quality able to play in different positions. And I think it's worth saying that if you're going for the title, sometimes you just get moments from real fringe players who mm. you wouldn't consider as title winners. I think of Leicester in 2016 when their backup striker who seemed to come on in every game was uh, Leonardo Ujoa, mm. who really, I mean, probably like a championship level striker, if we're being honest, but he pops up with a 90th minute goal against Norwich. They win 1-0. And that, you know, is a, is a bit of a springboard to them winning the title. You'd obviously rather have good players than bad players in reserve. But if it's just a 10, 15 minute run out, you never know what's going to happen. We're essentially hitting on the fact that there's a certain profile of player or a few certain profiles of player that lend themselves to being squad depth rather than just having 22 amazing players that you've spent loads of money on because you think that they can contribute to your first team which they can't all do uh, I guess there are some links back to last week's episode talking about Chelsea and the way that they've built their squad particularly in attacking areas right now uh, and and maybe we should expect some some awkwardness uh, over the next year or two until the squad looks a little more streamlined and a, a, you know has had time to, to kind of balance it itself out I mean Michael I guess we're, we're looking at in Nketiah's case, a young player who truly understands the club and has been waiting a long time for a chance, but for the most part, and I know he has angled at times for more game time and potentially a move away to get it, but for the most part, understanding their role, not insisting on starting games every single week and therefore not causing problems. Then there's also the the James Milner, the John O'Shea, as I like to, probably a, 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 a better reference in my eyes, a sort of defined backup that very much understands that support role as well uh, and versatility being a, a huge bonus as well someone who can fill in more than one role at a decent essentially a non-damaging level having the right mentality or just matching expectations rather than causing a problem when there's an absence yeah I think it's interesting what Liam said about the players coming through the club as well I mean Manchester United always used to have that they always used to have a uh, a core of players who were just around for six, seven, eight seasons who would just do a job in whatever position. And it often was youth graduates. It was John O'Shea, it was Wes Brown, Phil Neville, Darren Fletcher, Nicky Butt to a certain extent. Chris Eagles never quite never quite made it to that level. No, although he did score a crucial day... Uh, sorry, scored a crucial goal on back end of 2006-07 season. Just came on, had five minutes, scored away at someone in like the biggest day of the title race. I was going to say Everton. I think he might have started a game after they'd won the title. And you know when Fergie used to just play yeah. whoever for the last three games. I remember an Eagles goal, I think it was against Everton, after a title had been won. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Good time to, to ask you guys to look back through the history of the Premier League, really, and the history of title winning teams in the Premier League. Can we say, based on the... How many years is it? 30 years worth of Premier League title winners. Can we try and definitively say how much depth does a title winning team tend to need and how do we measure that? Well, I've actually got some data um, sent by our, our new recruit, actually, Duncan Alexander, previously of Opta. Um, and of course, it's going to be some really in-depth um, data from, from what he sent. So I basically got the number of the most used uh, lineups and the number of them going back to the, the first season of the Premier League. Um, and I won't fly through all of them, but the, the most sort of settled lineup um, in the history of the Premier League was Manchester United uh, in the 92-93 season, where they used the same lineup 17 times across the whole season, which I think is a, that's the most of, of anyone um, in, in all the years of the, the Premier League, which is quite remarkable considering that there's there's two teams, uh, Leicester and Chelsea, as a settled side, which we sort of alluded to before um, in the 2015-16 season for Leicester, 2016-17 season for Chelsea, had uh, the same lineup 13 times, but they didn't have European football, and they, that sort of allowed them to have um, a, a settled lineup. So, considering that they're the nearest one, everyone else uh, across the the history of the Premier League is in the sort of the two and the three, maybe four and five in terms of using that same lineup each time. A lot fewer than you might think. When you think of every title winning side, you could probably think of like the best 11, but often it's only probably a handful of times that that 11 actually starts and finishes um, the the game. So I thought that was quite interesting. There's, there's one... Premier League side um, who has used 38 unique 11s across the whole season. And that, I don't know if you know off the top of your head. Is this a title-winning side? or yeah, just title-winning side. Yeah, wow. these are all title-winning sides. Was it Manchester United? It's Manchester United in the 96-97 season. Ooh, okay, 38 unique 11s across the whole season. The original Tinkerman. There you go. Yeah, and it's funny because sometimes I've seen criticisms of, I think it was one of the European Cup finals Manchester United lost. And someone said, well, that 11 had never played together before. But that's just what happens. Mm. And it's also, I mean, in terms of... Um, you know, looking at the numbers and trying to quantify squad depth. It's quite difficult, isn't it? Because I remember Chelsea in 2017, they didn't change very many players, but often they just swap Pedro and, and Willian. Yeah. So it's like there weren't that many unchanged teams, but actually it was pretty much the same team, just one player keep on changing. So it's almost like you have to find like a percentage. And yeah. I don't know, even then, like if you've just got two or three players, it, it's actually tough to quantify how many players are really contributing to a title win, I think. Mm. I'm trying to work out if Arsenal is their core 
an 11 rather than an 8 or a 9 with, with two or three floating and swapping Probably, in and yeah. out because I, I can think of the 11 very, very clearly yeah, but yeah. not necessarily outside of that. Um, here, here's an, an interesting experiment or a quiz, I guess, to an extent. Michael, talking of uh, famous Premier League teams and squad depth and squad rotation and starting 11s, the most famous, I'm going to say, Premier League title winning team, Arsenal 2003-2004. They're sort of well-known 11. Mm. Lehman in goal. Mm -hmm. Back four of? Uh, Lauren. Yep. Torre. Yes. Uh, Campbell and Cole. Yep. Midfield four in a 4-4-2 of? Of Gilberto Vieira, Pires and Jungberg. Interesting. Uh, what about up top? Omri and Burkamp. Okay, so athletic new recruit Duncan Alexander did some work a few years ago uh, in his previous role on sort of famous 11s and how many times they actually played with each other. Now, interestingly, you went with uh, Gilberto here. Duncan, in his famous Invincible 11, had Edu as a midfielder instead of Gilberto. I'm not sure whether that would be considered controversial or not, but the look on your face says maybe it is. But that 11, Lehman, Lauren Torre, Campbell Cole, Yunberg, Edu, Vieira, Pires, Henri and Burkham, featured in only one Premier League game together. Uh, and that was a 2-1 win against Charlton where they were 2 up inside the first four minutes. So uh, uh, let's not get caught up in, in Edu versus Gilberto well, Silva. Let's, let's get caught up in it. It might change it completely. <laughs> Can we get Duncan in? No, I mean, is that more broadly? I mean, I remember that article he did and it was interesting. I mean, I think there was a similar thing for the uh, Manchester United side of 93-94, which you would say was a real classic 11. And they didn't start together very often as well. So, yeah, it's often the most the most... Like on average, the most used 11, rather than literally the most used 11, mm. if that makes sense. And of course, Leicester and Chelsea, 2016-2017, no European football. That has to be a filter that needs to be applied in this conversation. Yeah, I'm guessing a lot of Arsenal fans wouldn't mind if they're knocked out of the Europa League, to be honest, because, I mean, it's just difficult for many reasons. One, just in terms of games. Second, I think the Thursday-Sunday thing is a bit of a pain. Um and third, because the Europa League has generally been seen for Arsenal as their best route back into the Champions League rather than a trophy in itself, which I think is a bit poor. But if that is the logic, you probably don't need to worry about that now. I might have this wrong. Were Spurs in the Europa League when they were chasing City for uh, the title as well? They ended up a case where they were always playing on a Sunday. Um, well, they might have been in the Champions League at the time, but it often came that it was City playing before Spurs and always then having to chase a result. And at the moment, I think we're going to reach a point where I believe City have to play twice more before Arsenal play again, or there's going to be games in hand for City to play um, and Arsenal having to sort of you know follow up. So I guess that time when you've got a buffer and a lead, you want to keep it steadying it or you know doing your job, then you can sit back and enjoy you know the, the other team playing. But having to constantly respond to them winning with a win I guess just adds a bit of pressure I do enjoy the application of sort of everyone's personal almost like amateur psychology on this stuff as well right because on the flip side Manchester City could put a load of pressure on Arsenal if they win their games ahead of Arsenal and of course Manchester City will, will be feeling a ton of pressure to need to win every single game in order to apply that pressure on Arsenal and in terms of adding depth in January, using the transfer window to do so, as we discussed Arsenal linked with Joao Felix, linked with Mudrik. They might end up with Leandro Trossard, which feels like a slight removal in, in terms of the profile, of course, the fee as well. Um, Michael, in terms of past winners of the Premier League, are there any trends in terms of January signings, adding important names in January or frankly, just not really needing them? 
Yeah, not really needing them. City have won it four times under Guardiola, but in that time, there's only been one real key player who's been added in January, which was Laporte. And that was in the first of the four seasons when they were still kind of rebuilding the squad, I suppose. Um, but there haven't been many real big names. I mean, Liverpool in 2020, so Minamino, who played a bit part role, but nothing really to speak of. 2017, they recalled Ake from loan. He played a little bit, I think more in the cup, maybe, than in the league. Uh, Leicester added Damari Gray, who came on as a sub a little bit in 2016, Chelsea Cuadrado in 2015, but nothing really interesting to speak of in recent years. I mean, you probably got to go back. I mean, Manchester United on loan signed Henrik Larsson in 2007. It was pretty handy. And Jose Antonio Reyes had a good impact for Arsenal in 2004, albeit not necessarily in actually winning the league, but in preserving that unbeaten run in the last four games of the season. But really, I think more about Fostino Aspria when I think of this, when Newcastle were top midway through 95-96 and they strengthened with Aspria who was not a squad player he came in and suddenly the, the side was based around him and he was very good individually but it kind of everyone else's role slightly changed and I think probably compromised their performances until the end of the campaign so I guess the the caveat here is is very rare you get a side like Arsenal who weren't really considered a title contender who are suddenly the favourites for the league. The only comparable example really is Leicester. Yeah. And maybe it's a bit surprising that they didn't strengthen more in January. Um, they brought in Demario Gray, as I say, and Daniel Amate, but they were kind of ones for the future, really, rather than players who were going to contribute straight away. Is it, is it a bit like, I don't even have a child, so I'm not sure why this is, is my go-to analogy, but is it a little bit like, like just not wanting to make any noise in case you wake the baby up? in terms of like not wanting to do anything that could possibly upset like some incredible rhythm that your yeah, team yeah. has. Of course, if you're top of the league in January, something's going pretty well. So you don't want to like upset the apple cart. I thought you were going to be really topical in saying that uh, depth is like royal family having an heir and a spare. Like <laughs> you've got you've got your backup, but maybe not. Yeah, or or the fact that the president of the United States and the vice presidents always have to travel on separate planes just in case one of them goes down. Mm. You've got to always be prepared for, for every eventuality. So it kind of feels like January-wise, it's not about buying... Frankly, like it's not about buying a Joao Felix or a Mudrick for Arsenal. It's probably, looking at past winners, more about a, a player with the profile of Trossard. And, and essentially, it's, a sh it's like an insurance signing more than anything. Yeah, I think so. I think any club that tries to operate smartly and from watching Arsenal, albeit on the All or Nothing documentary, there were clear um, direct intentions, I think, to, to recruit young players to initially bring the age profile down uh, under Arteta. And I guess it's really hard to do good, effective business efficiently and not spend too much money. You're often going to pay a premium for someone in January. I think often it's people trying to, you know, fill a fixed immediate problem. We spoke about Joao Felix and Chelsea needing to improve their attack that Arsenal maybe don't quite have that problem. Um, so I guess they don't want to overpay for someone that they might in six months' time look at and go, didn't really need them. Um, they've got obviously the, the youngest agent in, in the league. They're building sort of a project over time. I guess they'll do their big recruitment sort of uh, in the summer windows as and when they need to and when contracts are, are running down, etc. And Trossard looks to be capitalising on a good opportunity of a player who is probably worth more than what they'll pay for him. You know, there's a degree of guarantee in terms of coming across the league um, and also helps because he tends to score against Arsenal as well. So I guess that stops them yeah. conceding against him. Yeah, if you subscribe to the theory that every Premier League goal is worth I don't know what they say these days, a million quid or something. It is around just, that. just taking out two goals, uh, you know, two goals a season could be quite crucial.
Liam's always got his Brighton hat on, <laughs> never stopped. I mean, just I just wanted to stick with with age because you mentioned it before, Liam, that Arsenal have the the youngest weighted average age, twenty four point nine. Um, and I looked through the archive of the average age of each title winning uh, squad. Uh, the average age is twenty six point eight. Um, for a title-winning squad. And I'm going to ask uh, another question, a quiz. Do you know the youngest average age um, of a squad to win the title in the history of the Premier League? I'm going to say Manchester United, 95, 96. It's not Manchester United. You'll win nothing with kids, surely. <laughs> yeah. Not, yeah, it's a good that's point. That's like on uh, QI. That's the big yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the obvious wrong answer. It's true. I mean, I was surprised by this one. The youngest um, is Chelsea 0405 season, yeah. 25.2. And it, it, I looked through the actual squad. It was unbelievable just how you associate like John Terry Petacek and people like that, Joe Cole, as yeah. sort of older statesman but Joe Cole was 22 um, you've got Petr Cech 22 John Terry 23 but Paolo Ferreira was 25 Heidegger Johnson 25 I just think of Heidegger yeah. Johnson as constantly 31 years yeah, old absolutely, yeah. the concept of John Terry ever being 23 just doesn't quite yeah. doesn't fit does very it very strange and the oldest um, well can you guess what the oldest was in the history of the I would guess Arsenal 97 98 no I'm going to stick with or we shall stick with Chelsea um, 09 10 season um, yeah. 28.7 was their average age um, and it's pretty much the that's same that's classic Ancelotti well, isn't it say, yeah, that's just there. classic Ancelotti yeah they've got <laughs> you got John Terry 28 Frank Lampard 31 Petr Cech 27 Didier Drogba 31 Michael Balak 32 so you've got more elder statesmen there but the wider point being that there's yet to be a team um, who is who will have won the, the title as young as 24.9 as an average age so Arsenal would be Arsenal would be if they were to win it be the, the youngest title winners Leandro Trossard might bring that average up a little bit but um, it just goes to the wider point that it's having that blend of, of experience um, and a bit of youth as well I would have bet good money on that Arsenal 97 98 too just because of the back four they were all in the 30s seeming in the 30s 97-98 was 28.2 just shy of 28.7 so it's right up there Just going back to the signing of Trossard and the question of adding squad depth because of a perception that a team might need extra squad depth. Michael, do you think the the obsession with squad depth, particularly at the top of the Premier League, is in some ways bad for football, given what we've discussed and how much depth title-winning teams have actually needed over the years? Is there an aspect of this where it, maybe it's a bit of a myth perpetuated to kind of allow big clubs to hoard top players? Maybe. I, I, it's, I wouldn't say it's as much of a conspiracy theory as that. But yeah, I think it's... Um, I'd rather those players would be playing regularly for mid-table sides or bottom half sides. And I mean, it's not even just the um, just the big clubs. I was watching Liverpool Wolves on Tuesday night in the FA Cup. And on Wolves' bench, they had Matias Cunha, uh, Matias Nunez, Diego Costa and Daniel Pedenza. And that's a, like a relegation threatened Premier League side who can bring on four attackers. You, I mean, any of those could be at Arsenal. It's an incredible amount, amount of depth at some Premier League clubs. And yet in general, I think it is it is a bit of a shame there's so much hoarding at the big clubs. And I actually wrote about this at the weekend after WSL game uh, between Arsenal and Chelsea. And I looked at the benches and I thought if you made a combined 11 from those benches, they'd probably challenge for the title. They'd, they'd probably come fifth, actually, but they'd be up there in the league. And I just don't think that's a good thing for football when there's such inequality. 
Do you think that's sort of being compounded now by having five subs and having, you know, bigger squads now? And even internationally, we're seeing the same thing of um, players can operate in that role of being maybe a 30 minute a game player. Um, obviously, we spoke about, you know, Pep and, and others liking small squads, but um, there's now going to be a way that managers can use a big squad. Um, you know, you can have players that you specifically buy or you have to go, um, let's have you come on and, and impact games. There's a great piece up on the site about holding uh, for Arsenal, that sort of shut down role and bring on a defender to, to lock out a game. Um, and obviously, normally, I think we're sort of hardwired to think of subs as bring on a striker to change a game and sort of win it or, or to salvage something. But to have those players definitely versatile, maybe, you know, to, as Michael said, you've got your reason. To, to change shape and um, to go between different competitions so now you're going to get those finisher specific roles obviously clubs are now some of them employing substitution coaches which you know might sound far-fetched or ridiculous but the principle being that clubs are taking this really seriously that it's not just a, a manager going yeah I'm going to bring this person on there's there's method it's it's almost becoming a bit scientific now and it's one of the reasons I don't like five subs and it's also the reason I don't like nine player benches because it used to be 18, it used to be 16. I think when you're, when you're a manager and you have to say to a player, look, you're not even on the bench, you know, go and sit in the stands, the players are probably more likely to go, well, actually, I'll, I'll try and get regular first-team football elsewhere. Mm. It was a really good article by uh, Gabriele Marcotti a couple of years ago who suggested as a bit of a solution to the inequality within football, we always focus on redistributing money. But he came up with quite a good idea about redistributing players and basically limiting squad sizes much more strictly. And basically, if a player didn't get a certain number of minutes per game when they were fit, they'd kind of be free and their contract would be free and they could go elsewhere and play regular football. I thought it was a, a really interesting idea. Probably more of a wider point, but I was listening to a podcast the other day and they are saying how the, the, sort of the whole wider system of academy level is now under 21s, under 23s, however you want to call it, where it used to be reserves. And the player in question said that they used to be playing quite regularly alongside people who were squad players weren't playing from the weekend and, and really raising their levels and the, the player themselves who wasn't able to make it into the starting 11 for the first team was able to get more minutes through the legs as well and I know that they have kind of training matches and there's a lot of training etc but I don't know if it's kind of a, a wider point on the, the system at play that there's a lot of players who could feasibly just be on the bench for weeks at a time get a lot of training sessions and then that disparity in quality when they do come on as you say thinking about that strength and depth is that the manager's less likely to play them in the first instance because they haven't actually they're not match fit and everyone speaks about the, the importance of match fitness versus kind of physical fitness so maybe more of a wider point but it seems like it could be kind of more of a systemic issue as well. I wonder, just going back to Arsenal, whether the signing of Leandro Trossard, if it is to come to pass, might be a bit of a kick in the teeth for the returning Emil Smith-Rowe or, or even for someone like Reese Nelson. What does this what does this do for them? Is, is this the club saying, we don't think we can trust you if we need you? We need to buy someone who we think can do a better job? To a certain extent, but I also think it's just a reflection of Arsenal's changed target change priorities this season I mean those players are youngsters still kind of trying to prove themselves that's fine when you're going for top four but suddenly when you're going for the title you think well okay we need someone a bit more has done it at the you know in the Premier League which Trossard has so yeah I understand that but um, I'm sure the, there's compensation by the fact they're you know in a title challenging side and probably going to be playing Champions League football next year so I'm sure they'd be okay about it Mark Liverpool last season competing all the way on on four fronts talk me through the the squad depth that Klopp had and how he used it and whether there might be any link between that and and this season's drop-off 
Yeah, well, they had. So I did a piece on this just after the uh, the season had finished, and it was seen as a, a real positive. Obviously, they'd competed in every single game possible across the whole season. They they played in sixty three games, and they basically had a, a core of ten players um, who had played over three thousand minutes. So uh, about sixty percent of the the total minutes available, which which was quite a lot. And you you think you maybe could have trusted the the fringe players a little bit more. Um, but then it's almost the, the cost of the success. It's sort of a winning formula. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. If you've got that that players that those players who are doing so well and progressing through obviously the the, the season itself um, in in cups and domestically. But I think it maybe speaks to again a wider point that Chelsea also played in sixty three games last season. They played in the the Club World Cup as well. And it maybe well Klopp has said it's it could be a reason as to why they seem to be dropping off in their, their levels this season and Chelsea obviously not too far behind them in that sort of drop from from nowhere that there's fatigue physically but also I think psychologically as well especially for Liverpool because of the the up and down nature of coming so close to two of the, the major titles of the, the two that they won I think if they had to choose it would be the other two that they would have liked to have won I think that's fair to say the, the Premier League and the Champions League so I think the physical side of it they've certainly dropped off but psychologically they're, they're probably a little bit all over the place. Very interesting discussion. Michael, would it be fair to say, after all that, something approaching a consensus would be that Arsenal possibly don't quite have what might be widely considered to be strong squad depth, but that might not matter as much as some people think it needs to matter? Yeah, I agree. A very snappy conclusion there. (laughs) (laughs) So they're in pretty good shape. Well, I think they are. I mean, they're just playing so well as a starting eleven. And to reiterate a point said earlier, but I think it is crucial. They have got a really settled starting eleven. Like it works so well on the pitch. If you've got twenty players who are trying to be who want to be in your first eleven, and you feel you've got to give all of them some minutes, you probably lose that. And I worry for Chelsea at the moment. You know, they brought in so many players. They already had a pretty big squad. They've got twenty-two, twenty-three players who think I deserve to be playing here, and I, I don't think Graham Potter will, will be able to satisfy them all. Whereas Arteta. I mean, Arsenal might fall short for various reasons, but I don't think it's going to be because there's a lot of unhappy players on the fringes of the squad, which, by all accounts, that was a serious issue two or three years ago. Liam, we spoke about the catastrophizing and Arsenal's recent past, maybe making these questions, these thoughts feel a bit more emotional than, than other clubs, but speak to the Arsenal fans listening. Do you objectively think they can do it? I think so. Um, we've seen them play, I think, Pretty much every team now, if not if not every team. Um, I think not not a, Man City. Not Man City, <laughs> of course. Um, but there's a great piece from John uh, John Miller up on site, looking at their away form um, and their home form. But comparing their away form in particular this season to their home form last season, and they are in terms of points per game and their goal difference, not quite stylistically in terms of possession and field tilt, but their actual output in terms of what they're getting from games this season, they're as good away from home as they were at home last season. Um, Obviously, there's numerous reasons why, you know, home field advantage will, will impact things. But um, the old cliche thing of, you know, you're trying to win your home games, draw away. Uh, at least I know that's a big recipe normally for success in the EFL and trying to get promoted. But I assume for sort of pushing up, um, the, you know, anywhere in the division. So, and we saw them against Spurs. I know that they're not in a great place, but Arsenal went there and apart from maybe the first 10, 15 minutes, really bossed the game. Um, even second half, I know Ramsdale made plenty of saves, but I think they really gave up too many really big chances, um, really, you know, really controlled and commanded a game particularly one and it's such a big derby uh, and when you keep passing those tests um, I think it's, it gets harder and harder to really sort of see um, any reason why they can't do it 
that is a really good piece from from John Muller. By the way, I would implore everyone to to read it. the The only thing that I'd say to pour water on the fire is that officially speaking, you could say statistically speaking, Arsenal haven't even, and a lot of teams haven't even reached the halfway stage of the season. They've played 18 games. And I think we're almost in a bit of a false sense of security that you think we're coming towards the end of January. Mm. Therefore, it's coming close to the home straight. I know we've discussed what constitutes the, the home straight in the past. But I think it's obviously factoring in the World Cup. We need to remember that there is still technically just over half of the games still to play um they look for all intents and purposes like they they will continue to you know have that form that they've got but there's just so so much longer of the season to go is the only caveat that i'd uh, i'd add and michael they've got the the sort of potential issue seems weird to say that of the europa league kind of hanging over them they don't know who who they'll play in the first knockout round or in their first knockout round just yet but that is something that could and has on previous teams have an impact in the next few months. Yeah, it could be an issue. I mean, I really, I'd try and get knocked out of that. <laughs> Honestly, if I was Arteta, I really would try. Not ideal in a sort of sporting sense, is it? No. To have, I mean, it's a rare scenario, but a scenario nonetheless where a team it, it could be in basically every single way better off losing and getting knocked out of a competition. Yeah. The good thing is it, when you look at their list of potential opponents, they're pretty strong, slightly weird, format to the Europa League now right but they'll be up against quite a good I mean it could be like Barcelona for example it's okay. a, so it's not going to be they're not going to be kind of trying to lose to a you know Macedonian side or whatever it's going to be a, a game Arsenal feasibly could lose and I think probably should lose that'd be a lovely boost for Barcelona as well wouldn't it <laughs> to get past the you know the, the, the tabletop in Premier League side Mikel Arteta just, just uh, giving Xavi a little leg up there that would be nice yeah huh Let's see. Let's see. Um, fascinating discussion. Thank you so much to, to Mark, to Michael, to Liam as well for talking me through squad depth and Arsenal. John Muller's piece sounds like a must read. And of course, there's so much on site at the moment, as there always is. You can sign up to The Athletic for just pound ninety nine a month for a whole year simply by heading to theathletic.com forward slash tactics. Go and listen to that Athletic Football Podcast episode on Martin Odegaard and make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed for next week's episode as soon as it drops. Thanks as always for listening. Get in touch with us on Twitter or by commenting on the podcast page on the app with any requests for future episodes. We see them, we like them, we discuss them and we may well take you up on it. So get in touch and we'll talk again next week on the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.